Hey, comrades. We're here to finish up our discussion of Socialism, Utopian, and Scientific by Frederick Engels. As a reminder, you can find this reading for free at Marxist.org. Do a little search. Very easy to find. And if you want, you can be a super nerd star student and subscribe to our Patreon. $5 a month will get you access to my beautiful notes covered in question marks and little doodles quite awesome. I must say so myself. You also get access to Gray's notes, which are like probably actually helpful. Anyway, hope you enjoyed the discussion. And yeah, keep it real. this next section this stuff i was mostly familiar with all right yeah this is um this is a good kind of detailed version of the communist manifesto basically so let's cover a few vocabulary terms for this section here for historical materialism number one and one that i saw tripped you up quite a bit and may have tripped some of our our readers up is anarchy in production yeah what the fuck Anarchy in production is the best way that he could come up with it, I guess, for his time. But what he's referring to here is the unfettered free market. Oh, okay. It's a laissez-faire economy. Because I was like, I like anarchy usually. (laughs) Yeah, but here he's not referring to the political philosophy or anything. He's just saying it's a system with no rules or planning, just where firms don't coordinate with each other. They do whatever they want. Okay. That that is a lot easier to understand now. Got it. The free market. The next term is socialized production. What the fuck is that? So socialized production just refers to when many people work together to produce something. So socially, not socialism or anything, socially, right? I think that's what threw me. Yeah. So just, <laughs> and I was like, that sounds good. Yeah. It, and it is good in its way, but it's just where a lot of people combine their labor to produce something. Um, so okay. like fabric in a textile mill versus an individual weaver or something like that. Got it. The key thing here is that I guess it, it lowers production cost a lot. Mm-hmm. And it increases the productive forces. May- means you can make more shit for cheaper. Yeah. All right. Next one is products versus commodities. I was super. I think you I got think it. I got this one. Okay. Yeah. So products is like I'm a farmer. I made I made a carrot. <laughs> Here's my carrot. And then a commodity is I am a big farm. Like I'm a, a factory farm or whatever. I made a fuck ton of carrots. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I'm selling them? Yes. Pre- and I have extra carrots? Pretty much. And even the small farmer can make a commodity <laughs> carrot, you know, if they grow too much and they're just, oh, well, hey, here's another, I'll sell this it's carrot. surplus. Yeah. Yeah. You got to it. Yeah. A product is just something that's produced, you know, right? Just anything, a, a shoe, a violin, a carrot, a massage, a podcast episode, that's all products. It's just something <laughs> that's made. Uh-huh. And then the commodity is something that's made for the purposes of exchanging Okay. So that's it. Yeah. Like I can make some bread and eat it myself or I can make a shit ton of bread and make a profit. Commodity. Yes. There we go. All right. That's probably better than the carrot one. (laughs) (laughs) Either way it works. Um, And the last one is capitalistic appropriation. See, that one sounds bad, but tell me about it. It is bad. Um, (laughs) Okay. (laughs) This is where individuals own whatever is produced. So in your farmer example, the farmer owns the carrot, right? Uh Uh-huh. He did it. In your bakery example, you, you make... I made my bread. You made some bread. You made it. It's yours. Mm-hmm. However, what happens when you open a big bakery, right? And you start producing a ton of it, like socially, right? You have a lot of people work together, lots of workers. 
Oh, so they're making the bread, but they don't own the bread. Yeah, because you own that bread once it's produced. Jeff Bezos reaping the rewards of his workers' <laughs> labor, you know, while they're having to, you know, get aid from the federal government because they're not paid enough. Because mm-hmm. he gets all of their, what they've produced. That's capitalistic appropriation. Okay, got it. Whoever the owner is or the owners are, get the money. The workers don't, even though they're the ones that produced it. Okay. Let us begin. Historical materialism. What do you think we're doing here? Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, we're just we're doing the manifesto again, right? But this time we're talking more about like the history of history and the history of philosophy and to an extent the history of science. Yeah, we're kind of breaking down why this is a scientific view and not just something we want to happen. Hey, was this after the manifesto? Yes. I figured. Yeah, far after. I thought mm-hmm. I would check. This is like the more developed version of it. And Engels is trying to say here, look, guys, we're not just like bullshitting you. We think <laughs> this is really going to happen. Okay, And cool. here's why. Um, so he briefly explains the materials conception of history. He says the production of the means to support human life and the exchange of things produced are the basis of all social structure in every society in history. I mean, that makes sense. Like when you do like world history, like the very first thing is like, yeah, we we were cave people for a while and then we figured out how to make shit. Like that was a big deal. (laughs) Yeah. And it's weird. Historians seem to get that initially. (laughs) They seem to get the agricultural revolution, Neolithic revolution, they'll call it to change and started civilizations. But then they forget it and they become idealists at that point and say like, okay, but then someone thought of this. And so what if we do democracy? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like. They forget it at some point because it becomes convenient to, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I wrote a note here because he, he talks about like philosophy versus economics. And I wrote, look at the American Revolution and the French Revolution. Like, I think mm-hmm. when we talk about those revolutions, I, we mentioned this earlier, a lot of it is like oh, liberty and justice and all these like abstract hoity-toity things. But if you look at the American Revolution, it's like, man, they didn't want to pay some fucking taxes on tea. Like, they were the bourgeoisie, like, trying to get out of shit. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, for sure. Same thing with, like, Civil War to an extent. I mean, obviously, slavery, bad. But that was an economic system. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, the South was trying to protect its... The the, the leaders of it were trying to protect their economic base. Mm Mm-hmm. So he starts and says, uh, and says, okay, historical changes, right? They're explained by economics. Not only that, but the solutions to our social problems can be found by studying our current system. Don't dream mm-hmm. up your utopian society, but figure out what's wrong with it based on what you see mm-hmm. and go from there. Instead so again, of being we're like being scientific. Yeah. Instead of like trying to say absolute justice and truth, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he goes on to say, okay, well, I guess we got to figure out what's, <laughs> what is going on right now. What's the present He rolls up his sleeves like? at this point. Yeah. All right. So here we go. <laughs> Modern society is a creation of the ruling class, the bourgeoisie, the capitalists. And he says pretty much, ah, everyone, everyone admits that. Come on. <laughs> we all know. <laughs> but this you know, kind of has an historical origin. And under the old feudal mode of production, feudalism, right? Uh. A young budding capitalism started growing in the cities mm-hmm. so you had like guilds and shit yeah eventually though its productive forces grew right it could make more shit yeah until that grew so much that it w- came into conflict with feudalism the old system of individual privileges of hereditary aristocracy of the old guilds and stuff were in the way 
Yeah. Here's here's a, a simpler way to put it. You have small-time manufacturing happening in the cities, right? Mm-hmm. Just making more stuff. But they could make more stuff if it weren't for those feudal lords saying, no, 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 my serfs need to work on my land and give me stuff. Don't take my serfs away for workers. Okay, that makes sense. Because to be a king, I mean, you got there because, like, you were very, you had a good army and, like, that's how you got power. And then it shifted to, like, now the people with power are the people who can make a lot of shit. Who can make a lot of shit because they have capital. Because, yeah. The, the main thing is that they're they're making the shit to sell, to get capital, to make more shit to sell, to get capital. And the capital is what's key because that's what how they fund, you know, their armies, professional mm-hmm. armies. Ooh. The king has control over these armies and stuff because they own the land, which was previously what was what it was all about was holding land and making mm-hmm. people work it and giving you the stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. And now these guys are trying to grow their industry and stuff, but they can't get more workers because those workers are tied down to the feudal lords and the guilds tying up would be wage workers. OK, so they, they come into conflict. And so Engel says, what did the capitalists do? They tore down the old system. <laughs> uh, they to- tear down feudalism. They have bourgeois revolutions and they build on its ruins the capitalist order of society. The kingdom of free competition, of personal liberty, of the equality before the law of all commodity owners, of all the rest of the capitalist blessings. <laughs> oh, good. Sounds great. You can hear the slash S at the end of that. <laughs> so he says, basically, this is how historical, historical eras change. Productive forces grow so much that they conflict with the old rules, with the old system. And the old system is replaced. That makes sense. Okay. And so then he says, okay, well, if that's how things change, then that's how things are going to change. As capitalism grew from small time manufacturing into modern industry, as he puts it, you know, mechanized technological industry, thanks to the industrial revolution, uh, its productive forces grow too. It can make more stuff. Yeah. So as capitalism develops and it can make more stuff as productive forces, just like before, it outgrows the old, the old rules in place. It outgrows the new capitalist system. So just like young capitalism outgrew feudalism, this new, you know, improved technological industrial capitalism is outstripping the rules of baby capitalism. Okay. It's grown beyond those rules. So he says like modern socialism is nothing but a reflex of the working class. The working class, we're just realizing that this is happening and saying, we got to do something about this. <laughs> yeah. It's not something we're just dreaming up, basically. Uh, next, he goes into detail about how the conflict arises. Mm-hmm. Starts with the Middle Ages. You've got people generally just producing things individually on a small scale, if that's in agriculture in the country or, or in towns or whatever. Yeah, so like I'm a I'm a surf. I own my my hoe and my bucket and mm-hmm. my my other farmer <laughs> items. <laughs> I yeah. just I mentally opened my inventory in Stardew Valley. <laughs> just start going through it. Yes, yeah, you're right. He says, okay, so this individual producer, right? Your raw materials or whatever, everything kind of belongs to you in a way, not mm-hmm. fully, especially if you're a surf, but sort of. You apply your labor, you know, with your tools. So all that stuff is is kind of like you have an individual relationship to it. Mm-hmm. Even if ownership-wise, maybe not. But yeah, especially in a small artisan shop. If you yeah, don't it's the baker the analogy. I'm, I made this bread. Yeah. 
It's your labor or maybe the hands of your family, he says also. Like, it's very clear who owns it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Naturally, society says, well, duh, the individual (laughs) is the owner of that because they made it. Mm -hmm. obviously you usually are producing things for your own consumption too right yeah subsistence farming or maybe you decide to sell it but either way that's up to you deciding Mm -hmm. whether you're going to consume it or sell it as a commodity that's you right yeah and another thing about that old system is that production is without a plan he confusingly puts it as anarchy in production right Uh, yeah (laughs) he's just saying that we don't coordinate things the serfs aren't sending letters over saying like how much are you growing you know like it's Mm -hmm. just grow whatever you want, grow whatever you think you should grow, make whatever you think you should make. The only commodities that are, that you end up selling really end up being like your surplus, whatever Mm -hmm. excess. And the rest is just your consumption or maybe your feudal Lord's consumption. It's not for sale. There's not a lot of commodities. Okay. That's the old system. But then we see the rise of the first capitalists, the proto capitalists. Ew. Yeah. These guys are bad. These guys start concentrating the means of production. And all that means is like they're gathering bigger groups of people together to make things. Mm-hmm. All right. So they're bigger factories you can think of, or uh, in this case, it's really small scale. So it's like bigger workshops, you know? Yeah. So instead of like, I, I'm a weaver, I work on my loom. It's like, Hey, there's a cool spinning machine, which like, great, you can produce more, but like it probably takes more people to run it, you know? Yes, correct. These guys start producing And when you have a big mill like that, you're not just producing for the people that work there. Now you're producing as commodities, right? You're producing things to sell, not Mm -hmm. things for individual use of the workers or you. Yeah. So instead of at the end of the day, like you made this much yarn, you get to go home with that yarn. It's like, no, you get (laughs) paid money. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, You see, this is the rise of socialized production. Mm -hmm. Which again is a bad thing. Don't get confused. (laughs) <laughs> yes, socialized product. Well, it could be a good thing. It could be. A it good will thing. eventually be a good thing. Yeah, socialized production, putting larger number of people to work together to make stuff way cheaper than individual producers can. However, Engels is careful to note that even though this is no longer an individual's product, right? It's socially produced. It's the labor of others. Mm-hmm. We're still using the old system. Where just one individual, in this case the capitalist, right, they are the owner of the means of production. They get ownership of the product. Mm, run that by me again. Okay. So it's the Jeff Bezos thing. Okay. Even though all these people are working together to produce this stuff, the one person or the, the few owners of the enterprise, you know, they own the things that are produced. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Even though everyone's working together, right? That's yeah. the legacy of the old system of feudalism where those individual artisans, those individual farmers actually did the work themselves and owned it. Mm-hmm. We still have that system, but in a, a workplace where so many people are working together. So it's, it's like archaic. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. This is where we, what we were talking about capitalist appropriation. Okay. Engels says that this contradiction everybody's working together to make this stuff, but only one guy is getting the reward gives capitalism its character makes it what it is. Yeah. Because it's not like I go in, I keep thinking of like, you could have a collective workshop or like, it's a workshop. You come in, you make your shit and you take your shit and go home. Like that's not what's happening here. No, no. This is where we all go. You know, we all work together, you know, in a grand symphony of labor 
in a restaurant, right? You know, mm-hmm. you've got to have the host. Well, I mean, I guess now you just have to have the takeout staff or whatever, but you have to have <laughs> front of house and back of house working together to give people what they want in a timely fashion and everything. Mm-hmm. Everything's got to be coordinated. But at the end of the day, while you might, you know, you'll, you'll each draw your wage or each draw your tips or whatever, the overall profits is going to go to the owner. Mm-hmm. And he says that this contradiction contain his quote is contains the germ of the whole of the social antagonisms of today. Okay, that's a big statement. This is where it all comes from, he says. Okay, that makes sense. All right. Yeah. I had a note there that I was confused, but now I get it. Now that I know what socialized production and capitalistic appropriation is, I got it. <laughs> yes, yeah. As capitalism takes over more and more of global production, as more of our production is done socially with, you know, in big groups, while individual capitalists still rake in all the dough, that's we we kind of more and more notice that this is bullshit, right? Mm-hmm. That this is fucked up. We shouldn't be doing it this way. And that I mean, I think that's where we're at, right? Yeah. He thought that's where they were at then, but like we're at the, we're there now. I know right? this we're, was kind of a depressing part. It was just like oh, like yeah. I feel like he thought we'd be in a better spot by now. <laughs> we would be the utopia picture, right? Yeah, <laughs> we'd be the space meme. Yeah. So Engels then goes on to discuss, okay, how does capitalism make, how, where does it go from there? Mm-hmm. Started this process of socializing labor, uh, but how does it kind of take over society? And he says, at first kind of wage labor was mm, a side gig. If you were a farmer, mm-hmm. you'd grown your crops, you'd planted your crops already and, and tended to them, you might then go in and like help somebody build a mill and as a day laborer and get some money that way. Yeah, right. yeah. Like this was very common for like women in the family. They would card mm-hmm. wool or like do it, take in laundry or, you know, just like extra shit like that to make yeah. more money. Exactly. It was an accessory, he says. Mm-hmm. You know, pretty much most people were working for their own production. Or if you were like in a guild, you'd be working basically for your education um, rather than for wages. Those weren't mm-hmm. really that important. The change, though, takes takes place when the capitalists take over when they socialize production because they can make stuff for cheaper and make more of it and so they start amassing more and more capital profit right wealth Mm -hmm. and they use that to further increase their market dominance they drive out their competitors who can't compete with these prices they shut down the mom and pop guilds the artisans (laughs) and everything And they turn more and more people into wage workers. Yeah, that makes sense. And as the feudal system is dismantled too, like that wasn't an overnight process. They just like waltz in and be like, feudal (laughs) is done, right? (laughs) Uh, As aspects of that get taken apart and peasants start getting evicted, um, jobs in the countryside start drying up. More and more people are driven into not being temporary wage workers, but permanent wage Mm -hmm. workers, wage workers for life. Yeah, yeah. This process is so slow that it's still going on, you know? Yeah. There are still people who are kind of getting driven into wage work. It's the process of separating the real producers of the goods. And and sometimes I think this is confusing the way Engels phrases it when he talks about producers, because we're conditioned to think of producers as like capitalists, mm-hmm. businesses. Yeah. But he means producers as in the people Workers. who are really doing the work. Yeah. It's kind of like that atomization thing too. Like because you're working in this big factory, you're not really building just one thing. You're not like I made a loaf of bread today. You're like I processed the flour today. 
Yes. Yeah. He, uh, this is kind of a process of separating the worker from what they're doing from the means of production and from like the work process itself. Uh, Marx in earlier works calls that alienation. Oh, like I don't know why I said atomization. (laughs) No, it's cool. Uh, I got what you're saying. I don't know. I just found it interesting that Engels is kind of already seeing that trend happening then of more and more people getting kind of condemned to a life of working for a wage. Mm-hmm. He calls this the antagonism of the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. And I think it's a good term. I think a lot of us are antagonistic, to say the least, about the fate <laughs> that we have been you know, put in. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. So next he goes on to discuss the consequences of the free market, anarchy in production, as he puts it, and says that all these capitalist firms are basically making whatever the market tells them they have to make. The inexorable natural laws, he puts it. He he paints it like they're all like swept up in a windstorm or something. You know, they're just, whoa, we got to do this. We have to do this. (laughs) He says, with commodities, the products govern the producers. Okay, this part was interesting. Explain that concept to me. Sure. He's essentially saying here that with commodities, with selling things on the market, you kind of have to respond. Uh, you have to respond to the market. You kind of have to figure out what's what people want and everything like that. So you end up having to, you're at the whim of, of what people want to buy or of, of what's in demand or whatever. So initially, most things in the middle ages, like most things weren't commodities, right? Yeah. So like back to our bread analogy, <laughs> I'm hungry. <laughs> uh, I'm, I want to eat wheat bread today. So I'm making wheat bread, I'm like fuck off. That's what I want. You know, I want a pumpkin yeah. loaf done. But if I start selling and everyone's like, no, I fucking hate pumpkin loaves. Like then I have to start adjusting to what they want. Yes. Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> the key thing here is that, under capitalism, so many more things are commodities rather than products, right? Okay. Now we're, we're making things to sell things, not making things to consume ourselves. Right? Okay. And what happens here is that since you're not just producing like enough for just yourself, you, if you're trying to produce to sell things, your goal no longer becomes, let me, you know, make what I need. Your goal becomes, let me make as much as I can, right? Let me oh. sell a ton, right? So yeah. I can make more money. I mean, that's yeah. your goal. You, you want to make a bunch of shit. And when you do that, it becomes clearer, I guess, in society that there is no plan because now <laughs> you have tons of people making all this different stuff, right? Before it was just kind of like, okay, a few extra things would come out into the market. Mm-hmm. Now you have all this stuff out there. Engels phrases this as the contradiction. The antagonism between the organization of production in the factory, right? The social organization there, Mm -hmm. very planned, very strict. You know, we know we're, it's highly organized. If anything, you know, a a corporation or our bakery, whatever it is, right? (laughs) Uh, It's highly organized versus overall in the economy, it's the Wild West. It's free market. So organization on a, a micro level. But the, the structure itself is like, yeah, fucking do whatever you want. Yes. So the more that this social production spreads, the more that the organization, the highly organized firms spread, the more it drives out the mom and pop artisan shops, the more the market's completely dominated by these commodity producing capitalist firms, 
the more ruthless you, your free market competition, your anarchy in production reigns. So the more organization you're introducing at the micro level, the more chaos you're getting at the mm-hmm. macro level. Yeah, because you get so efficient. That makes mm-hmm. sense. Okay. And he says that in doing this, capitalism is gradually creating more proletarians. Yeah, because as they're as they're putting of like small businesses out of work or small like artisans out of work, those people are the wage people. Okay, got it. Yep. And that's like, oh, uh, you know, cool. We'll get more workers to exploit, but to a point, <laughs> because eventually they're going to be storming the gates. <laughs> Hell yeah. I like the note about a uh, transforming handicraft into manufacture. That that just got my brain thinking like William Morris was a big uh, socialist and he was like mm-hmm. the father of the arts and crafts movement. So we should do oh. an episode on him. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So yeah, that's an example of dialectics at work right you've got the opposites of the increasing social production but the increasing free market anarchy of the whole system okay you've got the increase of capitalism but as a necessary component of that you have the increase of the proletariat who will destroy capitalism Uh, okay that makes sense that makes sense i still don't know if we needed all of that introduction <laughs> to get to that but point. But okay. you see now, though, it's a flow of <laughs> becoming and unbecoming. Capitalism is strengthening and creating its own demise. You know, I had to unbecome to read this, and now I'm becoming. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good, good, good. Here we go. Um, so along with this increasingly cutthroat competition comes a compulsion for capitalists to constantly improve their technology. I thought this was interesting in terms of like, we talk a lot about automation today and like Mm -hmm. it is what drives wages down for sure, but it doesn't have to be. It could be the thing that saves us. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This is a great, a great passage here because Engels is saying that even back then they were driven to, you know, automation, their form of it, but it translates Mm -hmm. now too. Uh, They have to do this to keep up with their rivals or they're, they're done. Right. Mm -hmm. But In doing so, this automation is creating what Engels calls an industrial reserve army. I like that term a lot. So just masses of potentially unemployed people because Mm -hmm. your factory is so good and now only needs like it needs fewer people to run it, which means you can lay off people. Mm -hmm. And now because there's so many workers, you can afford to pay your workers shit. Yes, it's an excellent way for the capitalists to keep wages down. It's a reserve army of unemployed, basically. And you're right that these um, machines, these technologies that could help free people from labor. It's doubly shitty because like the workers are making this technology that could free them. Marx puts it, he quotes Marx here and says the most powerful instrument for shortening labor time becomes the most unfailing means for placing every moment of the laborer's time and that of his family at the disposal of the capitalist for the purposes of expanding the value of his capital. Gross. Yeah, we are forced to make the instruments of our own demise. We're forced to make these machines that only that are supposed to save us labor and everything, but actually just line the pockets of the people who own them and force us to work them. Yeah, like uh, this is kind of a designery example, but like mm-hmm. part of my job is is working within a style guide and 
you know, helping to make that style guide in what's called a style library. And the idea Mm -hmm. is this makes it easier so that later people can come in and like build a new page and they know how to do it. But part of that is you are building efficiency into the system so that they have to hire fewer designers because it becomes so easy. Yes. Yep. That's a good modern example of it. Thank you. (laughs) Engels kind of adds that, you know, this is not a moral question. Mm Mm-hmm. This is not, we need nicer capitalists. This is not, (laughs) people need to donate more. This is not uh, anything, any question of that. To expect it to do any differently, he says in a kind of nerdy (laughs) paragraph here, he says, this is the same as expecting the electrodes of a battery not to decompose acidulated water, not to liberate oxygen at the positive, hydrogen at the negative pole, so long as they are connected with the battery. And then he pushes up his glasses. (laughs) <laughs> uh actually uh no but he's, he's he's right we can't expect a nice capitalism right it's we the nature of it, it to do something different yeah the whole goal is more surplus so they're gonna do whatever the fuck it takes to get that yeah he says okay well what else happens with this cutthroat competition Aside from the capitalist compulsion to improve their technology, it's also to increase their productive force, right? They've got to try to constantly grow or else someone else is going to defeat them. Mm-hmm. So every firm's trying to, to grow and expand. And that's why we have this like psychotic drive for eternal perpetual growth. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because it has to be there because otherwise what are we doing this for? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, what does this lead to? When production grows faster than the markets for these commodities, you end up with the boom and bust cycles. Okay. Yeah. He put it kind of confusingly, but that's all what it boils down to. Can we review this? Because this one always kind of blows my mind a little. Sure. So let's do another stupid analogy. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm, in, I'm in bakery A and there's other bakeries, right? I make yeah. so much fucking bread because I'm so good at making it and I really, you know, am mean to my workers, I guess. And you need to do that. You're not just being mean. You need to do that to keep up with the other bakeries. Yes, yes. I'm trying to be the best bakery. And so because not only am I making so much bread, but all those other bakeries are competing with me too. We make so mm-hmm. much bread that there's just too much bread everywhere and it's really cheap. Yeah. Okay. Periodically, you'll glut the market. You'll produce too much shit. Products, he describes it as products piling up without buyers, basically credit drying up, capitalists. When when that happens, when you're running your bakery and you've produced too much, ah, shit, you know, you're not going to keep making bread or like, oh, we'll make less bread or, you know, we'll, you're going to shut down. Yeah. You're not going to release more bread. You're going to destroy bread rather than sell it at a loss. Yeah. This is why you have fucking fields of potatoes being tilled during a fucking pandemic. Yeah. You're laying off workers, you're shutting down, you're, you know, you're going to wait it out. He says, the mass of the workers are in want of the means of subsistence because they have produced too much of the means of subsistence. What, what does that mean? <laughs> it's, so it's a story. I mean, it's, it's, we have produced too much stuff. Mm-hmm. But how does right? that relate to the workers, I guess, is what I'm asking. Like, so like the capitalists would just say, okay, I made too much, I'll shut down. Mm -hmm. And they just wait until people want whatever it is again. Like, bread is a very bad example. Let's switch to houses. (laughs) Switch to houses, switch to cars, switch to whatever. Until the surplus is just destroyed, basically. Uh Depreciated, enough 
you know, stuff and enough people have been ruined by the passage of time, then they'll say, okay, well now, you know, now I'll go ahead and start producing again. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, you have all those layoffs. Yeah. In the meantime, workers, sorry, see you. And, and Engel says, you know, when capitalists make too much stuff, people won't buy products at a price that will make a profit for the capitalists. Okay. Yes. It's no longer worth it for the capitalists to do that. And so when that happens, they're not going to be nice guys and say, well, we'll just keep working and stuff. They're just yeah, it's going like, oh, to Oh, you can just down. have this, this house for cheap. It's like, no, I'm going to go destroy this house. Yes. Or <laughs> I'm going to leave this house on the market. I'm going to hire guards to make sure you don't come in this house and live in it. Yeah. That's insane. They would rather close down their businesses, keep their houses closed, keep people off their property, fire their workers, buckle down and wait for the market to come back rather than keep producing and losing money. This is kindergarten level, like share your shit. Take your ball <laughs> and go home. Yeah. yeah. So, so when he, when he quotes Fourier and says, um, abundance becomes the source of distress and want. Mm-hmm. And that's what he's talking about. There. Okay. Okay. He, he's saying that the reason that these surpluses cause a problem isn't because you know, it's stupid. Like, right. We have too much shit. What, why don't we just give that to people? Right. Mm-hmm. But the reason we don't give that to people is because capitalists own it and they won't give it to you unless you give them what they want in return, a profit. Okay. Okay. And so the next passage here, uh, that you highlighted, if you want to read that. Because it is the very thing that prevents the transformation of the means of production subsistence into capital. For in capitalistic society, the means of production can only function when they have undergone a preliminary transformation into capital, into the means of exploiting human labor power. You could see my face getting more and more confused as I continued. Please explain. <laughs> <laughs> so... What we're saying here is that the thing that is getting in the way, all right, this is kind of a complicated rephrasing of what we just said. The thing okay. that is getting in the way of the means of production humming back up again and, and the factories working and everybody doing, doing what they were before, the thing that stopped it is that the capitalists can no longer do the only thing they're interested in doing, not making sure you have a job, not making sure that they make you a quality home, not making sure that you get a good sandwich or you get a good loaf of bread at the bakery. Mm-hmm. That's not what they're interested in doing. They're interested in making a profit. And if they can't do that, they're shutting it down. Okay. That's what it says is that, and he, he phrases this later as, the mode of production is in rebellion against the mode of exchange. The mode of exchange being that the capitalists make a profit. Okay. And he's saying that like, once they've made too much stuff and they can't, you know, and people won't buy it at the price they want at the, for the profit that they would get. Once that compelling interest is gone, they don't keep playing. They quit. Okay. That makes sense. They shut down, they make people suffer. And that's the reason why it happens. I mean, I I think I keep going back to that thing, his nerd paragraph of like, this is just the nature of it. It's like to be good at capitalism, you are going to do these things. And like, We all act like it's a big freak accident anytime, like, there's a bust. Like, oh, mm-hmm. that was so weird when we had the dot-com bubble. Like, oh, yeah. so weird when we have the housing crisis. It's like, I don't think it's <laughs> that weird, guys. Like, I think we all saw that coming. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it happens almost on a schedule. It happens <laughs> pretty much predictably. 
Um, and then everyone wants to go af- afterward and be like, oh, we need this smart regulation that'll make everything good. Okay. Yeah, like there's so much obfuscation of like why it happened and mm-hmm. like just making it. Like I'm even thinking of like the big short was about the housing crisis and like they tried to make their explanation very simple. Yeah. But even that was like, oh, it's because they split up the loans into blah, blah, blah. I'm like, it's also because they fucking, they made too many houses, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's a bubble, classic bubble, right? Producing too many things. And that's what he's talking about here. This is, I will add as a caveat, everything's got nuance, right? This mm-hmm. is more complicated than Engels lays out here, of course. There's okay, way yeah, more moving yeah. parts and everything. But this is the kind of like the basic dynamic at work. Yeah, Engels, it's like if you're the greatest serial killer ever, <laughs> you're gonna, that's your goal, you know, like... Yeah, there's there's no this is their goal is to make profit. And Engel says that these crises are caused by these ever growing productive forces as we're able to make more shit and capitalists have to make more shit to keep up. It outstrips the capacity of the market to uh, to buy it. Okay, And he he says that kind of as this keeps happening, it becomes openly ridiculous. Everyone can see the solution that's there, that this could be solved if it wasn't for that ruthless competition, if it wasn't for the capitalist need to make a profit. He phrases it here as a ghost standing in between the workers and the means of production. Like, that's the only thing, is that those capitalists have to be paid. Other than that, you could produce what you want. Other than that, you could be employed, you could be housed, you could have a good life if it weren't for them saying, no, I'm not letting you do that because I won't get paid. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. So he phrases this as the, uh, as the productive forces pushing toward the abolition of their quality as capital to the practical recognition of their character as social productive production forces. Gonna need a translation on that one, bud. All he's saying is in each successive crisis, Lots of capitalists fail, right? Mm-hmm. They collapse. Their business is toast. They sell, they go bankrupt, whatever. Who cares? <laughs> They're knocked out of the marketplace. The system starts consolidating into bigger and bigger firms. Oh, okay. That makes sense. And so as the crises happen, you end up with small, you know, with fewer, but way bigger enterprises, businesses. So like conglomerates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, more centralized, more socialized firms, as Engels puts it, right? Mm-hmm. Conglomerates, all these forms of businesses. And that's going to show people more and more openly how production is social, right? Because you're just going to have yeah. bigger and bigger numbers of people. Yeah, because eventually, like if all the <laughs> potato farms just become one big potato farm, you'll realize when they have too many potatoes and destroy them, you're like, they're only doing this for that. Like it's, it's yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The first instance of this that we'll see, he says, or that they're seeing at that time, because they had these was Mm -hmm. joint stock companies. Yeah. What are those? It's just, it's a old fashioned phrase, but it's just a company whose stock can be bought and sold by shareholders. Okay. Isn't that just a company? Publicly traded company. (laughs) Okay. That was new then, you know, a company where you can buy stock in it and whatever. Okay, cool. Uh, it's a way to make the company bigger. It's just a means of, of growing, putting together more capital than one person could put. Right. Oh, cause it's like, if you buy like a share, that means I'm getting your money so I can put that into production. Yes. Yeah. Oh, did I just understand the stock market? That's kind of what you're doing. Yeah. Damn. I hate that about me now. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, from there, capitalists move on to unite into trusts. Yeah, what are those? I know sometimes we bust them, and most of the time we don't. Yeah, most of the time we don't is right, <laughs> because we don't call them trusts anymore. We, don't, we just call them conglomerates and stuff. Sometimes these are openly formal, like a conglomerate, which is just a group of foods or you know f- food brands. I was reading about this today, but... <laughs> It's true. Every food is from like the same company. It's terrifying. Yeah, it's wild. It's like all craft or something. Yeah. A group of companies. Well, Nestle is a big one too. Oh, Nestle is a very big one. Anyway, a group of companies that are all kind of united um, under an umbrella company or a, a conglomerate uh, mm-hmm. or it can be informal, like people colluding or something. It's technically illegal, but like who's ever going <laughs> to actually get them? Yeah. This gathers a lot of market power. These businesses are like dominant in a market ultimately trying to get to like right a monopoly yeah yeah you know controlling the whole thing the whole regulating production in a way to try to maximize their profits Mm -hmm. but engel says this isn't going to work they're still going to get into crises those productive forces are still on the march and they're still going to end up eventually producing too much shit because they got too greedy that makes sense yeah so even if they all work together to like control, let's just make up another market. They control the housing market or whatever. Mm-hmm. They're still because, but then if they're not, they're not competing with each other at that point, right? Yeah. And they don't usually have like, they don't usually have a complete monopoly. They still, use, you know, typically mm, okay. you don't really get to that point. But even if you do, you're going to try to, you know, you're going to look at your previous quarter, your share, your shareholders, stockholders are going to be like, we want more money. And so you're going to be driven to, produce more to get that extra money at some point they're going to push the line too far and people aren't going to have the money to give them (laughs) yeah i think that's interesting because one i remember my mind was blown whenever i learned that like literally you are beholden to your stockholders to do whatever it takes to get more money like that's insane (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) that is very bad and then two i thought i think that's interesting because like it's a weird process where like you're building something, you're, you're producing something so much, but because you're so efficient, your workers are also like their wages are really low. So they can't even afford to buy the thing that they're building. Is that part of it too? You think, or is it? Yeah, that that's a part of it as well. It's not, they don't, he doesn't really elaborate too much here. He does have a little passage that talks about like destroying your home market by mm-hmm. immiser- you know, by making your workers poorer, basically. Yeah, I was confused by that. And that's kind of, it's, that's a part of it as well. Uh, I don't know how well that applies necessarily here. I mean, I know that like in America anyway, you know, wages, minimum wage is kept, you know, pretty low. <laughs> You know, but capitalism is also fairly skilled at making sure people have kind of creature comforts. Everyone's got an Mm -hmm. iPhone or something. Everyone's got a smartphone (laughs) anyway. Um, You know, everyone's got enough to keep them from openly rebelling because they're like in wanton filth. But but they're still they're still definitely dying. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) it's a slow death, And, and we're still kept from consuming more and and fueling them more because they're trying to maximize their profits by paying us less. So yeah, that's an that's an element of it for sure. Okay. Engel says basically that even as they combine and everything and try to make this work, crises are still going to happen. And either way, even as they combine, they're still going to all along be trying to exploit their growing mass of workers that they've got, right? Mm-hmm. That's like fundamental. That's how they make the money. <laughs> yeah, that's the bread and butter. 
So the crisis of capitalism is going to continue to develop. And eventually, whether you have trusts or you don't, eventually the crisis is going to get so bad that the state's going to have to step in and start directing production. Okay, that's interesting. He says it starts with things like the post office, the telecommunications is how we put the, he says telegraph, but we you know, don't yeah. really use that, <laughs> and um, transportation, you know, the yeah. railway networks or whatever. Nationalization, basically. Mm, okay. The state taking over ba- uh, to, to try to keep things from falling apart. So the next thing will probably be like phones. <laughs> you know, like they get mm-hmm. so good at making phones and eventually like they don't want to make any more phones because they're too good at it. And the state's like, well, okay, everyone needs a phone. So like here are your phones. Yeah. Or wireless internet connections. Um, yeah. Wi-Fi. Right. Um, that's a big, you know, I think that that should be nationalized and, and, and sure. publicly provided. And that's one of the big things we push for, kind of because it's one of these steps along the way. Uh, but the way Engels phrases it is that the state is, you know, being used kind of by the bourgeoisie. It's 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 for them. It's their thing. Mm-hmm. Right. It's the capitalist's state. And it's stepping in to make sure that they're OK. But what this does he says, is kind of show how useless the capitalists are as a class. Okay, right? explain that to me. So why why is the state necessarily for the bourgeoisie? Um, because they set it up. So the state is there to, we'll get into this a little bit later, but the state is there as a, a special repressive force. Okay. It's there to keep the proletariat in its place, keep the workers in their place. Oh, yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> it's there to make sure that they go along with whatever the bourgeoisie is doing, whatever the capitalists are doing. It's bought and paid for by the capitalists. They elect mm-hmm. their own members to it. They allow us to vote for whichever of their members <laughs> we prefer mm-hmm. to go and run the state. The state it can sometimes be used to kind of protect the interests of the workers narrowly, but is always within the system of capitalism. It's part of the superstructure that is reinforcing the economic base that is capitalism. Yeah, because most of the st- what the state does is enforce property. And Yes. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so when the state starts taking over, people start looking around. It's like, okay, what the fuck are the capitalists doing now? Why are they still here? Because like, <laughs> what are they doing now? Engels says they're pocketing dividends, tearing off coupons, and gambling on the stock exchange. <laughs> okay. Is that what happens? Well, kind of because like if the state has taken over, why do we have these like, you know, these capitalist guys wanting to just like take money from like. Yeah. Then you're just like kind of that's just corruption at that point. Right. <laughs> if you're yeah, if you're making and, a profit on a state enterprise that that's just corruption. So he says uh, this basically at this point, the capitalist mode of production forces out the capitalists just like it reduced the workers to surplus population. Basically Burn. <laughs> just makes them excess. <laughs> they get driven out by their own machine dialectics, man. They, they, they rose up their own, the instrument of their own destruction. Yeah. Shit. They're shown to be useless just as they always have been. And Engels then moves on to say, okay, well, what about the state ownership? How does that work? Mm-hmm. Good. Right. The state's in charge now. Yeah. I put a check mark by that. It sounds pretty good. Well, Engels says, while it's kind of like better, It's still only a step in the process. He says, capitalism is still happening, even with state ownership of the means of production, because now the state is the capitalist. Mm, Okay. 
it's in charge and it still gets all the stuff. And so it's still exploiting all of their citizens. So is that necessarily true? Like if I'm a state and I took over all my stuff, I took over all the the businesses. Mm -hmm. I, oh, is it because I need to make a profit to sell to other countries? Uh, Well, right now it's only because it's a bourgeois state still. Mm. It's still in the interests of capitalists. It's still, as, as he puts it, the modern state, no matter what its form, is essentially a capitalist machine. Yeah, that sounds right. And so he's saying, like, really, this is not the workers' state or anything. This is still the old state that was in charge before. And if they're administering it, who are they administering it for? The capitalists, right? Okay. And so, yeah, they're still making a profit. They're still exploiting the citizens by paying them wages that are necessarily lower than what they should get. I thought the capitalists were gone now, though. But they're still paying them? Like, the state is going to still, like, I took over. Because, like, who's someone has to run the state, and so those guys are in charge, I guess. So they're paying themselves. Yeah. So you imagine, like, the capitalists, probably a lot of them, like, end up in, in the government or something and just run it that way. Mm. One national thing. Okay. And it's not complete right now either. So, like, the state is taking over some stuff, but it's kind of a gradual process. Okay, yeah. Because I'm like, if you took over everything, like, there probably is a way to do it where you distribute the surplus and it's fine. Sure, yeah. It's just, I guess here he's meaning that the state is taking over more things. Okay. And so the state is still exploiting workers because it's still paying them a wage and making them go buy things to survive instead of just producing stuff for them, right? Yeah. And so the next step, he says, is society harmonizing with the socialized character of production by directly taking possession of the productive forces. That sounds good. Yeah. Since these have outgrown everything except for like society as a whole, maybe that's what he's saying we're going to do. So he's okay. He's just saying it's like a step on the way. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, so he says that here, I'm going to kind of summarize these next paragraphs simply because they're to me, they were complicated in the order he was. They were. (laughs) <laughs> he's explaining it, but he says, okay, A, we already realize that capitalism doesn't know what the hell it's doing. Yeah. Doesn't understand what's going on in terms of all the crises happening, right? It just keeps ruining everything. Yeah. It, at its best, it's still bad. Yeah. So he says, once productive forces have grown to this point, once workers understand the social forces that we've been describing, the means of production, the pro- all the stuff that we've been talking about, once they get it, and productive forces are at this point, we can use all that ability to make stuff, to make everything we need. Okay. And instead of just producing for commodity's sake, we're going to now start producing everything we need socially together as workers instead Mm -hmm. of ruining everything by overproducing bullshit for people to buy. Yeah. So like we we tried it, it didn't work. Like now, now we know that we need to try something different. And we realize it scientifically, yeah. And I think that's why he brings in this analogy of the difference between the destructive lightning strikes and the useful controlled electricity, right? The yeah. devastating wildfire versus the warmth of a family's furnace. It's us figuring out, studying and realizing how these things actually work and making them work for us, making this incredible market, you know, incredible productive capacity. Yeah, I mean, I keep going back to 
for capitalism, like if you say like, what if we had capitalism, but it was good? And it's like, okay, first off, what do you mean by good? Do you mean it's good at its job because its job is going to cause problems, the boom mm-hmm. and bust? Or do you mean good morally? Because even if you do that, you're still going to cause a boom and bust. And also you're still exploiting workers. Yes. So like basically there's no way to do that correctly. So let's use what we've learned. Like let's use, okay, we learned this bad to make boom and bust. So like let's not do surpluses anymore. And then we learned that you shouldn't exploit workers. So like let's not do that anymore. Right? Is that what we're doing? Yeah. There's And then he's, he kind of says there's a way to do that. Um, you have to replace the free market right anarchy and production with responsible economic planning with mm-hmm. socially producing things instead with deciding okay we're going to make this stuff and not to sell for a profit but to produce to provide for people and so therefore mm-hmm. you know it's not you're no longer paying people your wages and stuff to make sure they can buy commodities that you're making now you're producing things to give to them so that they can exist that sounds their great. individual needs so yeah, so Engel says we're going to do that. We're going to replace capitalism with the mode of appropriation of the products that's based upon the nature of the modern means of production. Okay, is that is that just what he said? <laughs> is that yes. just what you said? But fancy. Uh yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what he's saying is we're going to replace capitalism and its outdated way of deciding who the products belong to. And we're going to replace it with one that reflects what's actually happening. That socially we're producing these products together. And so socially mm. we should get the products. As a okay. Group. That makes sense. Yeah. Socially we're going to decide what we're making, how much we're making and who gets it, which is everybody. Yeah. Amazon takes over the factory. Jeff Bezos doesn't get everything because he doesn't make everything. Everybody makes it together. So everybody gets it. Nice. Yeah. That's what he's saying. And he says, okay, how is this going to happen? What possibly could, like, bring this about? The proletariat. Oh, I like those guys. Yeah, the working class, the great majority of people who, you know, who face destruction if they do not. (laughs) Yeah. uh, They're going to be the ones to seize political power in the state to take control of the means of production by turning it into state property and then to start centrally planning the economy to end the realm of necessity and move into the realm of freedom. So in that earlier scenario where the state starts taking over bits and pieces of the economy, eventually the proletariat's like, no, this is bullshit. Like we should have it. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. That sounds good. So uh, a number of, a number of things end up happening here that Mm -hmm. aren't really completely outlined in what he's writes here. You kind of have to piece it together. So here we go. Uh, For one, the old bourgeois state as we know it is abolished or more accurately defeated probably in a violent revolution. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Probably. Doesn't mention that here, but Engels was kind of a supporter of violent revolution. So that he says basically has to happen. You have to come in and kill the old state. Mm-hmm. and start your new one because yeah. it, the old state was just a bourgeoisie tool man it was just a capitalist what we said a special repressive force mm-hmm. a tool for oppressing the proletariat yeah yeah and they're gonna fight for the bourgeoisie right yeah that is the point at which the proletariat would kind of replace it with their own workers state it's not mm-hmm. really mentioned here necessarily because it, it kind of dances around it vaguely a little bit but yeah this is what we call the dictatorship of the proletariat Okay, I've heard this term. In the place of the old abolished state, 
you would have the worker state. It's just kind of a, its own special repressive force to use against the remnants of the bourgeoisie, the capitalists who are going to keep trying to take over. Okay, so this is like when you take over and you, you gotta do some purges, you gotta do some unpleasant shit. Yeah, and this was mentioned in the Communist Manifesto, so you can kind of like ease that part in here. It's a transitional stage. The workers are in charge and they use that state to start con- to continue the work of bringing all those productive forces under their control and to develop those into being able to provide everything for everyone. Okay. All right, so in doing that, once they have actually taken control once they have actually made it to where there are no other classes mm-hmm. everybody's everybody's proletariat they've kind of abolished themselves as a class right workers are the only class there's no antagonisms so there's no you know working class either there are no classes they control the means of production completely now the people society as a whole control it there's no difference there that was the entire distinction behind classes is who controls the means of production Right. Yeah. So they control both the means in terms of what we make and also the regulation of it. Mm-hmm. So so they're done since. Yeah. Since everyone's in on that, there's no oppressed group that's like, oh, damn, I have to sell my stuff. Like, no, it's we're all in it together at that point. So mm-hmm. there's no classes. Class is gone. That's cool. Yeah. Once that happens, as soon as there's no longer any social class to be held in subjection, he says, as soon as class rule and the individual struggle for existence are removed, nothing more remains to be repressed. And so Engels, this is where he says that the state withers away or dies out. Yep. It's kind of served its purpose, right? Yeah. It's done. It protected the, you know, in this new state, it protected the revolution, helped the proletariat, like help the workers go after whoever... (laughs) (laughs) tries to take them down and helps them get control of the whole thing, get control of the means of production. And now it's just extra. It doesn't need to be there. Yeah. Yeah. It's out of a job. That's interesting because in a lot of ways, so like, so capitalists, if they're very good at their job, they, they cause problems. If the state is very good at its job, it kind of goes away. If the proletariat state is, if it's, if it's a worker state. Yeah. yeah. If it's controlled by the workers, yes. If it's controlled by the bourgeoisie, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> it, I mean, it does a good job, though. I mean, it, once it gets to that crisis point and tries to solve problems, it does accidentally drive the whole thing forward to communism, but <laughs> it doesn't mean <laughs> it didn't to. didn't mean to. Yeah. yeah. You put on here, when he talks about the state withering away, Yeah. he kind of gives a little jab. Yes, he is taking a kind of a stab at the anarchists here. By saying it's kind of silly to just be like, oh, abolish the state out of hand. Like he's kind of saying it's useful. And then once it does its job, it'll go away. <laughs> Keep it until it's no longer useful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And he's also the specific phrase. I actually had to go and do some research and find that uh, that Lenin did some writing on this particular passage and said that um, he's the Engels was also taking a stab at German social Democrats. Oh, OK. What's time, their deal? Well, at their time, they, that time, they had a slogan uh, about a free people's state. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were kind of, it was kind of a reformist tactic. And they were saying like, oh, let's, you know, just elect the right people and we'll have a free people's state and make the state do good things. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was saying kind of like, neat, but how are you going to get there? You know? Yeah. Because if the state is controlled by the bourgeoisie, like good fucking luck. Yeah. You Which is where we're at now. Yes. <laughs> Merry Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) 
So uh, Engels then takes a step back to the grand historical arc, and he says, it's all dialectic. It's all materialist. It's based on the ever-changing economic conditions. He hasn't just come up with a cool idea. This is um, based on these certain new economic conditions, as he puts it. Yeah, I wrote a note here because he's talking about new economic conditions. Like, I think climate change is going to be a big old economic condition that we're going to have to figure out. It very well could be. When he's talking about, you know, the crisis of overproduction and everything, we can see in its ruin kind of a precursor to the ruin that's going to come with, you know, accelerating climate change, for sure. He says kind of, you know, this will... uh, these economic conditions kind of have to reach a crucial point of development. Productive mm-hmm. forces have to get to where they can produce enough stuff. And only then will we reach this crisis point. So I'm confused about this because when I first mm-hmm. read this, I'm like, okay, does that mean like replicators? But mm-hmm. then later he's like, no, we're here. We, we made it. Yeah. It's an important point. And I think that I kind of agree. Well, I don't know if I agree with him that the point was in 1880, um, <laughs> seems like we're late to acting on that i think they probably could have but i think the sooner the better is honestly my argument for it i think that yeah. at any point in history by this point we've crossed that at some point i don't know when but i think we've crossed it mm-hmm. and the sooner the better because the sooner we get it under control the sooner we can use a worker state to start directing things purposefully in the right direction we can start on purpose trying to develop the productive forces to get to replicators rather than waiting for capitalism to accidentally get us there. Yeah. Cause I mean, they don't want replicators cause that means all of their businesses are gone. Yeah. <laughs> Except yeah. for replicators. Exactly. So yeah, no, I, I just don't think he realized how much worse it could get really. Yeah, right. He thought that they had reached the point already. Uh, but I think from there he kind of paints a really good, a really cool picture of what can happen. Um, he mentioned before, but he elaborates here that once, once the productive forces, once how much we can make is freed from the bonds that the capitalist mode of production imposed on them, the, the accidental nature of capitalism and all its contradictions. Once so that once goes we don't away, have to worry about surpluses, basically. Mm-hmm, and, and, and keeping the capitalists happy, profit. Right. Yeah. Um, once we get rid of that, modern industries uh, can make more stuff, can expand. Uh, can can accelerate way faster into a, what he calls a practically unlimited, I doubt that, uh, increase mm-hmm. in production. You know, But I think that it would help us speed things along if we were in charge and we're making things that we thought were useful and stuff rather than whatever the p- capitalists can profit off of. Yeah, so we're not, I, I wrote, you know, we're not building yachts and shit because we're mm-hmm. like, nobody needs that. And we're instead, we're focusing on like, you know, fixing climate change and replicators and space and cool shit like that. Yeah, we're not going to have the periodic crises that slow us down so much because we're planning for that. And, you know, one big knock that comes on, on planning is, you know, oh, well, the Soviet Union tried it and it was so hard because, I mean, those guys were doing it on like pen and paper. Those guys were doing it later <laughs> on primitive computers. Like, <laughs> come on, we can, you know, we have the capacity to plan an economy now. Individual corporations do it. That's true. They plan things down to a fucking T. We could do it as yeah. a whole. You yeah. Know? I mean, and also like Soviet Union definitely was being shit on the entire time. Yes. Yeah. So um, you're right. We wouldn't have to waste stuff either on on 
the extravagance of the ruling classes, he put it. Like, yeah, we're not building yeah. yachts anymore, vacation homes, any of that, right? Yeah. I mean, we'll have it, but produced for the people rather than so someone can have a fourth or fifth one. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, he says here, we're focused, our economy is now focused on guaranteeing for everyone an existence, you know, the free development and exercise of their physical and mental faculties. That sounds so nice. <laughs> yeah. And here's where it starts to sound utopian. Yeah. I love this section, like saying that, like, we're finally marked off from the rest of the animal kingdom. Like, basically, like, our, you know, it's the Maslow's hierarchy thing. Like, our needs are finally fucking taken care of. Yes. And what I love about it is that while it sounds utopian and, and you're right, we're ascending up the hierarchy and everything. The whole previous work, and now we can kind of step back and appreciate it, the whole previous two sections were about grounding this theory in a logical, in a scientific approach. Mm-hmm. So he isn't, he's no longer like Saint-Simon Fourier, Owen dreaming this up and saying, wouldn't it be cool if we could do this? <laughs> he has rigorously laid out why history as it has unfolded is leading to this. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's pretty cool. And so you get your utopian, you know, kind of future, but without just being a utopian dreamer. Now you're being scientific about it. Yeah. I mean, he showed his work. <laughs> yes, he showed his work. Exactly. Where, um, you know, basically this is where we'll get. We'll become fully human, fully in control of our own history, our own destiny. He puts it ascending from the kingdom of necessity to the kingdom of freedom. Sounds nice. Yeah, dude. Cool. That's Engels. I'm fully on board. So this makes me a revolutionary communist, a Marxist. All right. You're 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 sold. Yep. I have to do some more reading on Lenin. Maybe a Marxist-Leninist. I have to do some more reading on Mao. Maybe a Maoist. But I'm definitely <laughs> in this revolutionary communist Marxist area. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds fucking rad. I will be friends with any ANCOM <laughs> or whatever. That's fine. <laughs> but I'm in this. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think it sounds really good. I I don't know. I think we've talked about this before too. The struggle between the comfort of knowing that this is coming and the comfort and like the urgency of like no, we need to do this right fucking now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm I struggle with that. This isn't just coming though. Like if we sit back and do, if everyone sits back and do, does nothing, capitalism not. will just continue to ruin itself. <sighs> the necessity part, like he says, oh, necessarily this is going to change to this is grounded in a understanding that people aren't going to take certain things that people are going to make demands based on their requirement to survive. Right. So once we get pushed to, Hey, it's either this or uh, what they say is uh, socialism or barbarism. Right. Mm, Yeah. We're either going to do this or we're, or it's all going to fall apart. (laughs) We have, you know, that requires us to do some fighting. Yeah. Shit. Or else we'll all be on fucking space colonies in the servitude of Elon Musk or something. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) On that note. Merry Christmas again. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Okay. What do you want to do next time? All right. Next time, let's take a look at a figure I mentioned in uh, in this episode. And they formidable figure in the <laughs> in the communist landscape problematic fave i would say 
Maybe so. Yeah. I'm, I'm, we'll learn really how problematic. Wanna, yeah. I really want to dig deeper into this guy and figure out like, what's the hype? What's the, <laughs> what's the deal? Why do people love him or hate him? That's Vladimir Lenin. All righty. Leader of the Bolsheviks in the Russian revolution. We'll see what he was all about. Sounds good. I'm excited. I know he liked cats, so. Yes, he did. Yeah. <laughs> That's important. <laughs> That's one thing in the prose column. <laughs> yeah. All right. Cool. Okay. Well, in the meantime, you can find us online. We are on Twitter at Teach Communism, Instagram at Teach Me Communism. You can send us an email, teachmecommunism at gmail.com. If you want to send us an episode suggestion or if you have a question, we can do a listener episode sometime. That'd be fun. We haven't done one yeah. in a minute. Mm-hmm. And if you also want to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be great. Rate and review. Yeah. We love our reviewers, except for the mean ones. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, that's the dialectic thing, man. With the, posit- with the good <laughs> reviews, you're going to get the negative reviews. I guess that's true. <laughs> we are also on YouTube. Uh, just search for Teach Me Communism on there. And we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash teachmecommunism. Be sure to sign up for that. $5 a month gets you access to our lovely notes. You can see all of the doodles and question marks I made <laughs> on my PDF. It's pretty embarrassing. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> you can see Thank Vampire you. Owen. Yeah, he's he's pretty cool. <laughs> all right. I think that's it. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, well, thank you for being a great student. I feel like I wasn't. I did my best. You saw my range of expressions today, which was confused and annoyed and just, yeah, slow understanding. (laughs) This was hard shit to get through, but you got through it. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for teaching me. Yeah. And thank you listeners for tuning in. You can catch us next week on another episode of Teach Me Communism, where the class struggle is always in session. All right, my cat's butt is against the mic, so bye. (laughs) (laughs) Bye.